Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This series provides full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Judy Sakes, who is the first arborist appointed as a full-time judicial officer in Australia. She is a commissioner in the New South Wales and Environmental Court. Previously, she was head teacher of soils and arboriculture at Ride College. This podcast features her talk on trees, neighbors, and the law, a model for resolving disputes. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia, in July 2011. I'm going to talk about a piece of legislation, and I hope to make it as interesting as I can, uh, given that I appreciate that there are people here from New South Wales, but there are many people from interstate and certainly many people from overseas. And talking about legislation is always a, a little bit tricky because everybody has their own, own laws. But this is something that we looked at in New South Wales. And just to get a little pers bit of perspective, um, I'm not sure how many other people have shown you a map of Australia, but um, we're just here, so a tiny little blimp. Uh, on, the, on the edge of this very large country. It is the seventh largest country in the world. We've only got 22 and a bit million people. Uh, most of us live in Sydney and Melbourne, two cities. In fact, 20% of Australians live in Sydney. And uh, we're just talking about uh, New South Wales. Uh, in terms of laws, there are federal laws which by and large don't touch us too closely except for things like taxation and so on. Um, but uh, most, of course, most laws that govern us uh, are state laws and then we've got local government laws. But that's, that's just to put it in a little bit of perspective just in terms of which state we're talking about. Just the background to this, I mean, we all live next door to people and, and some of our neighbours drive us crazy. And it's usually things like trees and fences and barking dogs and, uh, and noise. They have been determined to be the most common causes of disputes between neighbours. And sometimes those disputes can escalate to the point where, uh, you know, some pretty nasty things can happen to, to neighbours. And this was something that kept coming up um, as an issue, and particularly with trees, you would probably be aware that um, certainly in Australia uh, we follow the, the British system of law and this is a, a fairly common throughout the English-speaking world that if anybody did have a dispute with their neighbour about a tree there would be some actions potentially in the common law. So if your neighbour's tree caused you injury or caused damage you might then take an action in negligence 
against that neighbour. However, that would usually involve taking somebody to court. Generally, that involves some pretty heavy-duty legal fees, solicitors and barristers, perhaps, and probably a very, very long time frame to actually get it into the court system to be dealt with, perhaps even 18 months or longer. And all along that time, you're incurring costs and uh, it, it's, it's, it was expensive and time-consuming. And it was really only after the event. Uh, same with nuisance. You know, if you thought somebody's you know, tree was interfering with your normal and ordinary enjoyment with the land, you might pursue some, some kind of action. But basically, civil action in the, in the courts traditionally is very, very expensive. Uh, the other way in, in New South Wales and probably in most of the larger coastal cities, the way in which uh, trees are managed and, and disputes are sometimes resolved to, a, to a, a limited extent is that a lot of our trees have uh, tree preservation orders on them. Now, Sydney itself is um, an area uh, that has, and I'll, I'll put a, uh, some maps up later, but we have something like 41 local government areas within the general Sydney area. We're in Parramatta Council area here, but we've got you know, 40 uh, councils in a, in a relatively small geographic area. And they have their own tree preservation orders, but generally that is where a tree owner applies to a council to do something that they want to do to their own tree. And they may or, not, may, or may not get permission to do that. However, if you're the neighbour, Sometimes you will apply to the council to have something done to your neighbour's tree and some councils will say, yes, well, we'll let you take off a little bit or we'll let you take off a bit more. However, you have to get your neighbour's permission to do that because clearly they own the tree. And if you don't get on with your neighbour, that's just not going to happen. And uh, so there was a, a little bit of an impasse there and the Law Reform Commission took this on. And there were lots of issues, you know, raised about noise and fences and all of those sort of things and trees. And there was very, very extensive consultation. If you cannot sleep at night, you can read my paper, all right, which gives you the, the background on this. It's really pretty tedious. Uh, but it, was, it took 20 years of consultation and going back and refining for a bill to be put up to the New South Wales Parliament, the Trees Disputes Between Neighbours Bill. And so that was put up and it was read and, uh, and then it was accepted. And, and what was interesting is that it had support from all political parties because probably every member of state parliament had been pestered at some stage by somebody in their electorate about an issue with their neighbour's trees. And it's, it's um, you know, if you're, uh, you know, minded to, to go and look at Hansard, which is our... our parliamentary reporting system, you can read all the things that people had to say about trees and it was, it's really good because all of the people who spoke in Parliament about the Act said trees are really important but we have to have some easier way for people to be able to resolve disputes between neighbours. Local council didn't want to do it because it's a civil action. You know, local councils look after their own trees and they might protect trees on, on local um, property, but they don't want to get involved in neighbourhood disputes, even though poor old tree management officers often do. So there was, there was this problem. Now, 
in a tree preservation order, it's the owner applying to the council to do something to their own tree. Because we now have this Trees Disputes Between Neighbours Act, it means that somebody can make an application and can apply to the court and it's in effect a coercive system because we can make a tree owner do something to a tree that they may not want to do. So there's just a little bit of a difference there. And it is between, it is between neighbours. Um, councils, uh, I'm going to take you through what we do. Councils are uh, necessarily involved in this, but thankfully for councils, this act does not apply to trees that are growing on council-owned land. This was a terrible worry for people who were in local government when this, this was being mooted. Uh, because, you know, clearly after 20, around 20 years, you know, people knew that something was going to happen. But a decision was made that it should not, in the first instance, apply to trees on council-owned land because one that would have been a, a, uh, and a huge burden, a uh, cost burden on local government to, you know, have to front up to court cases a lot because there are often disputes between people who live in council areas and, and council-owned street trees and so on. But it was recognised that most councils do have, you know, qualified tree management officers and risk management practices. Now, where does it sit? It sits in the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. Now, mostly we have self-represented litigants, and this is the kind of civil action that might normally occur in our local courts. But because of the expertise that was in our Land and Environment Court, which is a very specialist jurisdiction, it typically deals with um, all matters to do with planning laws, anything to do with land effectively, breaches of environmental laws and so on. Now, the Land and Environment Court it's a fairly small court. It has six judges, one of whom is the chief judge, nine commissioners, of which I'm one. A commissioner doesn't have to be a lawyer. They're um, technical people, typically from planning or architecture or engineering. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a tree person. And uh, we hear a range of, a range of things. But it, it, it sits with us. And Normally, our court doesn't really deal very much with self-represented litigants, so it's, it's been a little bit of a surprise to a lot of people in the, in the registry. But our brief in the Land and Environment Court is to deliver just quick and cheap resolution of matters. Uh, that's, that is our mission statement, if you, if you like, and very much it applies to these tree disputes. Um, just with the lead-up to this, because... When, when a bill is being drafted and it's being prepared, there's a huge amount of work behind the scenes to get it ready to run. And our chief judge, uh, who is in fact a, a graduate of Ride TAFE, amongst other things, and um, has actually taught some of the people in, in, in this room, he anticipated that there needed to be a little bit of a heads up for the the nine commissioners that were there, just in terms of an awareness session, you know, just, just what a tree's about. So uh, I was asked to run a, a three-day crash course for them, uh, and that was really just to, so that they understood a little bit more about trees. But part of the, the whole deal, even in the, the government's formulation of this in the, in the early stages, was to engage acting commissioners who are arborists. So to bring that particular expertise into the court and uh, I was one of two that were um, that were appointed as acting commissioners. The act actually got going in 2007 and uh, 
in anticipation of that, it was very, very widely advertised in uh, local newspapers. Councils loved it. You know, they just thought, this is fantastic. You know, we can now palm all of these inquiries off to the court and uh, it'll, it'll quieten things down for us. And I'll talk about the amendment later. And uh, certainly, I worked in the very early stages with our senior commissioner, Tim Moore, who um, was once our, one of our environment uh, ministers. And it was interesting to try and, and understand the act from fairly early on. And this is the other thing that, that underlies the whole philosophy of the, of the Trees Act, is that it was determined that the, the, the decisions that were made had to be based on arboricultural practices and principles, and that we, we say that in a way that the tree has done no wrong. You know, we, we automatically start from finding in favour of the tree, and we, we work backwards. Um, our website is very, very detailed. I encourage you, if you are interested, to just do a Google search on our court. You'll find a little link to tree disputes. We've got an annotated act which sort of breaks it down and explains it and gives examples from uh, the case law. You can Every judgment that's ever been made is there. It's all categorised into local government areas and so on. Uh, we've got the chief judge did this um, very lengthy judgment in uh, who and he explained the whole history of the of the act and I would recommend that if you feel like reading 86 pages of, of judgment and uh, we also with the court have a, a blind copy email list of judgments and or matters that arise and we send those out to industry people. Now the act itself is in two parts. It's it's a really plain, it's written in plain English, which is which is good. It needs to be. And the first part, the original part, is about damage to property or injury to persons. And the new part that came in last year was about hedges and views and so on. Now in terms of uh, who normally applies, we'll have a look at that, uh, finding out where they live. We we get around about 120, maybe up to 150 applications a year. That is decreasing. Not all of those end up being heard because sometimes cases settle and they, they go away. But before they get to us, a lot of people would make an initial inquiry at their local council, be told, well, councils don't deal with this, go to the court, or they'd be encouraged to go to mediation. And our Attorney General's Department have these uh, mediation centres, the community justice centres, and we're told that in Sydney they deal with around about 550 um, issues about trees. And so they would probably head a lot of people off at the pass and then we get people coming through, people who don't want to mediate. Who are the people? Well, people who have genuine disputes with their neighbours. I mean, some people are not responsible tree owners. So it may be that you know, they are constantly getting their sewer pipes um, you know, clogged up with roots. It might be branches that are falling and, and causing damage and they've just got no joy out of their neighbour. Um, it could be the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, that they've, uh, you know, they just don't like each other. You know, they've got this long-running dispute, probably forgotten why. I think uh, when I did this little search for images, I think the Hatfields actually outnumbered the McCoys, but we do have litigants who have got apprehended violence orders out on each other. Uh, we've had to have two big commissioners, not me, 
one on either side of the fence, you know, dealing with, you know, rival bikey gangs and, and, and so on. So sometimes there's a lot of tension and you're constantly in a, on the hearing saying, I don't want to know about that, you know, <laughs> not interested. Um, we also have a lot of people who are very fearful and uh, what they're worried about is something like that, the fact that a branch or a tree overhangs their property, that it might do that. And of course, every time we have storms, you know, the media is full of the spectacular image of failed trees. But as we know, that doesn't happen that often. But people are, are very frightened about that. Um, my personal observation is the trifecta, which is the retired male engineer. <laughs> to me, somehow, uh, that seems to be the, um, the, uh, the ones who are most... And I have to say, there are just, frankly, the people who are really annoyed with having stuff from their neighbour's tree fall onto their property. I mean, I'd love to be able to put some of the photos that we get in the, in the applications, because you see people standing there looking really cranky because they've, with a palm frond or a, you know, uh, litter. Often, it's very artfully strewn across, and, and sometimes we see bits of branches that we know have nothing to do with any of the species that are growing next door. They've sort of been dragged in from somewhere else. Um, so where do they live? Uh, certainly since we've got views in, in our act now, we've got uh, a lot of coast, coastal areas, but I mean, that's where the population of New South Wales and the whole country is, it's around, that, around the coast. People who have retired to some of the North Coast co um, retirement areas like Port Macquarie and Coffs Harbour, we get little hot spots there. But really across Sydney, it's in leafy and non-leafy. Now for people who are from overseas or interstate, this might not mean very much, but you can see here, these are the number of applications, 457 up until June this year, but very few out over the over the Blue Mountain, you know, over the Great Dividing Range. And uh, that may be because it's more permissive or there are fewer trees or they like each other a little bit more. Um, we have more in the coast. Sydney itself, obviously the majority, well, that's where most people live. And uh, Greater Sydney includes things like the Blue Mountains and Gosford and Wyong. Now, it's a little bit hard to read and I'm not going to dwell on this. The inner city part is here. So we've got Parramatta there. So the city of Sydney would be here, and oh, that's another little plan. But it's interesting that we've got uh, places like Hornsby and Sutherland are very leafy, but they're very large areas. So we'd expect that. And really in the scheme of things, 27 applications, you know, over four and a half years isn't a great deal. Uh, but we've also got very leafy areas like Pitwater, very, very few. Um, and it would be fascinating to do a study of the demographics. Uh, when we get closer to the city, we're getting uh, more people and in denser uh, living. We've got a real spike here uh, in Mossman that's come in because of the views, because you know, they're views of the harbour and, and other splendid waterways. But it, it, that, that's interesting, I won't, I won't dwell on that. So why do they apply? Well, they don't like the mess. That's very common. People are frightened because trees move in the wind and I'd like to think, well, you'd be more frightened if they didn't, probably. Uh, that, that fear of falling things, they're overhanging. Um, 
they attract birds, bats, termites, mosquitoes, possums, and so on. Now we've held very early on that this is a this is a, an act about trees. It has nothing to do with bats or birds. Right? So if something lives in a tree, that is not it is the tree that causes the damage. It's not something that lives in the tree that might cause the damage. Uh, you know, we've all heard that aggressive roots that that might damage their house, but legitimately there are lots of issues where uh, trees have caused uh, often significant damage to to those structures. What do people want? Now, people, most people out there have very limited uh, knowledge of what you can do to a tree, and usually it's the extreme of well, we want the thing out or we want it lopped you know, topped. They don't understand that there's a whole range of things that you can do in between. And they, of course, want the neighbour to pay. Um, so they're the, they're the common things that they want. So what happens? Uh, when they come to us, they have made an application. So somebody's directed them to the court, they've gone onto the website probably, or they've rung up, and they they get a copy of an application form. And the application form is really very detailed, but they play a fairly inexpensive filing fee of about $200. That's all it costs them to bring this to court. And it is set up for self-represented people. There is no need for anybody to get uh, legal representation with this. And so they're quite detailed. What we found is that most people say no to everything. Is this tree protected? No. You know, has it got any biodiversity value? No. You know, is it provided amenity? No. <laughs> Uh, and who are the parties? Well, obviously the person who makes the application. The respondent is the tree owner. And the local council always has to be kept in the loop. Now, most local councils don't get involved. Occasionally, and certainly early on, people used to front up and say, look, I'm just going to clarify this. You said that this tree wasn't protected, but it is. All right, so just to clarify things. And sometimes uh, uh, council officers have been really incredibly helpful because they can explain a little bit about what's uh, permitted normally under their tree preservation order. If for some reason the property is on the, uh, our state heritage register, the heritage office must be notified. So all the applications go to everybody. They have a... Uh, that application is stamped with a time and a date for when the parties need to come into the court or be on the telephone to have what's called a directions hearing, which is essentially setting a timetable for any additional material that, that they need to put on. Each party has an opportunity to do that. And they're told very clearly that that material has to go to everybody, including the court and including the council. So when we get to a hearing, there are no surprises. People can't be ambushed with, with new material. If they're going to engage an expert and they're told that they don't have to get an arborist uh, if they don't want to because the court has that, that expertise. So they're told all of that and then the date is set and the hearings are done on site from, from where to go. And generally the whole process of people applying until when a judgment is, is given is within three months, which is really pretty quick in the legal system. So what happens at the hearing? They are mostly self-represented. You know, they turn up in their you know, shorts and thongs and uh, you know, usually having a bit of a go at each other. Uh, sometimes we have solicitors, and I did a case recently where there were four barristers. 
which was pretty heavy duty. Uh, we set, we just introduced ourselves, we uh, set the ground rules, so look, this is, even though it's a nice day, it's outside, this is, and it's relatively informal, it's still a hearing of the court. You know, you all have a chance to say everything you need to say and to show me what you need to see, but it's got to be done in a polite way. And, you know, check what they really want. We go and look at the trees and the damage from, from both sides. If there are any experts, and by and large there aren't, um, it's, it's not some, sometimes we have reports, and I'll talk about that later. Tendering the evidence sounds very formal, but basically we're just putting what they uh, put in their applications and any replies on the record. Final submissions, really, that's a legal term. It's just when they have their final say, uh, and then the judgment's given. Now, the, the things in the Act, we have to determine, is it a tree for the purpose of the Act? And it's a very broad definition. In fact, bamboo is a, a tree for the Act. We can have dead trees, we can have stumps, and just in the latest amendment, if a tree has been removed and there is evidence that it was there and it had caused damage, that can also be included. We have to check the location because, very importantly, the tree has to be on an adjoining property. And so it can't be on the applicant's property. It has to be next door. And to that end, we might, I don't know if you can see, you probably can't see this very well, but um, we might have to say, well, look, we're not satisfied that it's actually on the neighbour's land. You need to get a survey. This was one case that the senior commissioner did. He sent the surveyor back three times to survey the tree properly because typically, as you know, surveyors will just draw a little circle. And as we know, uh, trees are often buttressed and so on. And our definition of a joint, it's got to be substantially on the land, that is the neighbour's land, the owner's land, and that's measured at the base of the tree. And quite often the fence line isn't the true boundary, so we have to be satisfied that the tree is on the neighbour's land, and also the damage that people say is being, you know, the property that they say is being damaged is actually on the, uh, their own land and not on their neighbour's land. Sometimes we've had the applicant putting in uh, an application and we found out the, the wall or the whatever it is, this actually belongs to the next door neighbour, not them. So here we've got a typical situation where I guess this per person has the benefit and the burden of the tree, uh, but in fact the, you know, the tree owner is there. We can see that one's pretty straightforward. Now, in the first part, the, the most important test is we have to be satisfied, and we cannot make an order unless we're satisfied that the tree has caused, is causing, or could in the near future cause damage to property or could cause injury to any person. Now, it's not open-ended. We have a, a, a decision that we made that we decided that 12 months for property damage is it. Like, within the next 12 months, is this tree likely to cause damage? It's not open-ended. People expect you to be able to give, well, you know, maybe in 20 years, you know, this thing might fall over. Sometimes we've had applications about trees that are this big uh, because, you know, they might uh, block up, you know, the water board's main sewer, you know, which is two metres underground. Uh, for injury, it's got to be, you know, reasonably foreseeable. Again, it's just not open-ended because that would be, um, that, that's just, uh, it, it's too big a time frame. And we have to be satisfied on the preponderance of probability and the applicant has to satisfy us. It's the applicant's role to provide the evidence. Uh, is, it, is it actual damage 
uh, or is it fear of something happening? And uh, is it based on evidence or is just there an assumption that because there's a crack in the build in the footpath here, uh, or a bit of a crack here, and there's a tree there, that clearly the tree has caused that. That's the assumption that people make, and that's uh, we're not happy about that. <laughs> anyway, uh, the evidence that people people give. Now, sometimes if it's sewer blockages, it's terrific. I've seen a lot more footage of um, uh, sewer pipes than I ever thought I was going to see. And, but that's very helpful because you can see in the reports generally that they do that at six metres there's a blockage and, and blah. Uh, sometimes roots are extracted. I have to say that very rarely do we ever get any excavations done. And so there is so many times there is really that, just that assumption because there's a bit of damage and there's a tree that the, the tree has caused that. Now we had a, a case... Um, it was Smith and Hannaford, I think, versus Zhu and Zhang, and um, and it, it looked on on face value that yes, you know, he's a he's a big tree, you know, there's a, a root that you can see across the surface. Yes, there's quite a bit of damage happening to a house, uh, but when the trench was dug, you know, the root had been cut years ago, and and it wasn't anything to do with the root, but on the face face of it, it, it looked like there was. So we we expect. Um, people to do some, some digging and to actually prove that. There might be photographs, previous reports, receipts of work done. Now, when we go on site, um, it's when I, I, I just do a, the normal kind of uh, visual, visual assessment. Uh, binoculars are a, a common tool. You know, you do the normal sort of scan over the canopy. But I'm not there to, to be the arborist for the... I'm there with technical experience to say, okay, well, here's your evidence. I can, I can sort of validate that for you. So is that, is that reasonable? And um, this might be the damage, you know, that people are worried about. I don't know if you can see that little stick. Quite often we get up on roofs and walk around and, oh, you know, this is, you know, terrible stuff. And, uh, but it's a visual assessment from the ground looking for all the bleeding obvious things, I have to say. It's up to them uh, to provide uh, more of the evidence. So this here, the artfully strewn um, stuff, that isn't damage. Um, and <laughs> this was in the case, it ended up actually in our, one of our uh, papers, our main uh, morning paper, uh, a tree case. And this is meant to be the staining of jacaranda flowers in somebody's sheets that were hanging on the line. Uh, it was a jacaranda that had some very interesting, perfectly round holes, just at uh, just over fence height, and and so on. So sometimes we see a little bit of uh, dodgy stuff. This is from the uh, senior commissioner. Uh, the uh, the perfectly round holes. In fact, this is an interesting one because these trees had been in an interesting view line down to a beach. Uh, I think this person even said that they might have help them on their way and uh, he then decided that he'd bring an application because this might fall and damage and injure somebody down here in the public land and so all that was ordered was for it to be just slightly shortened and he could still look at dead trees. Uh, now with experts um, we do have some expert reports and they might be arborists, they might be engineers. One of the key directions that we give people is that if you are going to engage an expert, you must refer them to our Uniform Civil Procedure Rules. 
Schedule 7 is about expert witnesses and it's a code of conduct. And I'm sure that this is something that's, you know, a worldwide thing, uh, that people who are appearing as an expert in court, their duty is to the court. You are not an advocate for your client. That's up to the solicitor or the barrister or the party themselves. They're putting their best case. You're there to provide honest, an honest opinion and a substantiated opinion about what the likely um, condition is and, and, and the likely ramifications. And I have to say that we've seen a variety of reports. Some of them uh, range from very, very poor to very, very good and helpful. Um, not just arborists, but engineers. I mean, the classic one-pager from an engineer saying, oh, you know, I've been out there, there's a crack here, there's a tree there, it's the tree, get rid of the tree. That, that's, that's a classic. Um, when I'm uh, looking at a report, and I have to say that this is not just something that we get in tree disputes. We get very few reports, really, in tree disputes in all of the other jurisdictions that the court has, and, and I get involved in planning matters, so I might be getting reports from acoustic engineers, traffic engineers, planners, and so on. Whenever I read a report, I guess I get slipped back into my old ways of marking it. You know, it's a bit like an assignment, but I'm wanting to know who engaged, why, how they did, how they got their information. That method is so important to get an understanding of when and what they did. What did they find? Are the facts, you know, what are the assumptions they're making, putting it together, and then coming up with some recommendations that are actually practical. I have to say I get really uh, unhappy about reports, particularly we've had a couple where uh, even the tree owner has engaged their own arborist uh, because there are clearly roots causing damage next door, and the arborist has said, oh, I'll just put a root barrier in, just a throwaway line, without really thinking about the consequences of that. And in one particular case, you know, that would have been probably around about 200 millimetres from the base of the tree. Now, clearly, how can, how can you really reasonably recommend something like that when you're going to inevitably, if that happens, have to remove the tree? Um, so if people are going to be doing this, they have to be really thinking about, well, what is a sensible option? And, you know, if it's unpalatable to say that the tree has to be removed, well, fine, but, you know... That's, that's the way it might be. Now, um, once we've, if we've decided that, yes, the tree has caused, is causing, or could in the near future cause damage, or yes, it is, there is a foreseeable risk of injury, we then, it ticks that box. Uh, that it, that, that's a jurisdictional test. If it doesn't tick any of those boxes, we don't go any further. But if it does, we then need to s sort of do some balancing because trees are important. That was in the, in the parliamentary foundation, if you like, of this act, that trees have value. And so we think, well, what is the biodiversity value? Um, has it got any heritage? You know, what amenity does it provide? You know, if, we, if it was pruned in the way that they wanted to prune it, well, what's that going to do? Uh, other causes of damage, it may be that it's a tree on the applicant's property that they that might have caused it. Or there, there, could be, um, there could be old terracotta sewer pipes. So that's contributory. Might be a really old driveway. So we look at all of those other things. We look at what the parties have and haven't done. You know, ha has anybody taken action? And that all goes to mitigation. Now, very early on, 
because we had so many of these inquiries about leaves and stuff, um, we have what's called a true dispute principle. And it's, it's in this case called Barker v. Kyriakides, and we quote it probably every second or third case. And it says, for people who live in leafy urban environments um, and who enjoy the, the many benefits of trees, ordinarily, we're not going to make an order for any intervention with that tree on the basis of it dropping leaves because we expect an ordinary degree of external house maintenance. So we're not going to, we haven't, uh, we haven't ordered any pruning of any tree for any blocking of gutters, you know, etc. Uh, based on leaf drop or little bits of dead wood or whatever. We're not going to do that. And I think that's been quite helpful for local councils because the court has come out very strongly in that and they've been able to say, well, look, you know, the Land and Environment Court won't al allow this, so we're not going to either. Mind you, most councils wouldn't have anyway. And also we consider, was the tree there first? So if, it, you know, it even though it might have caused damage, if somebody has had an option in putting something onto their block and they, they could have put it over there, but they stuck it under their neighbour's tree, um, if something has to be done, well, you should, as an applicant, as the person who stuck that thing there, be responsible for... Uh, perhaps the cost of whatever has to be done. So when we come to making orders, do they really justify the end? People want trees removed because, you know, they might drop the odd little bit of dead wood. Well, that's not. That's, that's disproportionate to the, to the issue. Um, so what should be done? When should it be done? Is it a one-off or is it going to be ongoing, like the removal of dead wood every couple of years? Who should do it? Who should pay? And access. And that's very important for people to do the work because sometimes it's much easier for the work to be done via the applicant's property rather than the tree owners, and we can order that. Now, the consequences of making an audit, we take it very seriously because if it's an order of the court, if somebody fails to do that, they could be in contempt of court. And that can bring civil and, and uh, criminal uh, uh, convictions. We have an option now, if local councils, we've always had it, but local councils, um, if, if a, a tree owner legitimately can't afford it, they can ask the council to do it, and that cost can then be put against their, their land so that councils can recover the cost. I don't think that's ever happened so far. But the why councils have to know about it is because trees are protected by tree preservation orders, if we order a tree to be removed, the council needs to know that. If we've ordered ongoing works, those orders uh, run with the land uh, and so they go onto the planning certificate. So somebody, somebody purchases that property and it's got a court order against it, you know, for ongoing maintenance of a tree, that goes on the planning certificate so that that new person knows what they've taken on. So these are the orders that we've, we've made. Um, we've got... Um, I have to speed up a little bit now. They're the total applications. Uh, we've refused, outright refused, quite a lot of applications. Uh, we haven't really ordered the removal of very many trees. I'd have to say for all the big scary trees that are out there, we haven't seen that many. Um, we've ordered, perhaps rather than removal, we might have ordered the removal of deadwood or, or specific branches. And other orders might include things like grinding of trip hazards, uh, replacement of pavement and so on. So typical orders, well, the application's dismissed 
it might be pruning. We always in our orders specify Australian Qualification Framework Level 3 arborist, that's a tradesperson. Always for pruning, it's our Australian standard for the pruning of amenity trees. And we, in New South Wales, we have an OHS standard, the Work Cover Code of Practice. So they always get specified that that's who they have to use uh, to do the work. Sometimes our judgments include photographs of what should be done. So those little roots were going to be cut off. Um, uh, this one looks pretty dodgy, but it was actually a dead tree that had been uh, designated to be retained for habitat, but it needed to be reduced. And uh, so individual branches. So sometimes they use other orders, repairing of, of walls and so on. We sometimes work out who's going to pay. Sometimes it's an apportionment. Um, sometimes, in fact, the applicant has paid for the whole thing because uh, we've been, on the evidence, uh, considered that they have actually poisoned the tree. They've caused the problem and therefore they should pay. Now the hedges, this came in in 2010. It was already, it was always anticipated that because there were a lot of people complaining that they couldn't get a, a you know, an uninterrupted view of the harbour or what have you. Uh, so the amendment came in last year that an owner of land can make an application to remedy, restrain or prevent a severe obstruction of sunlight to a window of a dwelling or a severe obstruction of a view from a dwelling. So it was based in part on the, um, the Anti-Social uh, Behaviour Act. This is the anti-social topiary uh, component of that. And they're high hedges. Now, as a, and Jeremy might say something about that, but as I believe, this is administered by local, local councils. And there was some, there was some pretty uh, nasty stuff that happened. And, and I think originally it was set up uh, for Leylands, you know, the, the Leyland Cypress, people were worried about that, that we had pressure groups and you know people who hate hedges sort of groups in in the media and this is this is sort of the um, newspaper articles typically that that's that's actually middle harbor there uh, I did a case next door <laughs> to say and uh, this is what people were worried about that people had put in in hedges and quite often legitimately because of overlooking and so on and and uh, people were recommending uh, the Leylands because they were quick and they're bulletproof and all of those things, but they do grow pretty quickly. Now, one of the first things we have to do is determine, is it a hedge for the purpose of the Act? Now, the, the Act doesn't define hedge. It just says it's two or more trees planted, planted so as to form a hedge that rise to a height of at least 2.5 metres. So that's, that's where it kicks in. And it could be what we might conventionally think of a hedge. It might be a whole range of mixed species, but we've included bamboo. And, and in fact, that's our first test. If, if, if they don't form a hedge, we don't go past go. Now, the next thing, if, they, if we go get past go, we have to decide, are the trees currently, as we see it on the day when we get on site, are they severely obstructing the view? Now, the word severe puts the test at a very high level. So the bar is set high, and we have deliberately set that bar high. It's based on a planning principle of view sharing in our planning jurisdiction. And it's a, it's a fairly hard test. Now, if we find that, yes, they are severely obstructing, we've got to go to this next part of the Act, which says, well, okay, 
are the applicants' needs in, you know, it, what they want in terms of remitting this, are they more important than the respondents' needs, the tree owners? And is it reasonable to do that to the, to the plant? And that's when we get into these discretionary matters where we think, well, where are they growing? Were the trees there first? Has somebody moved into that? How high are they? What benefits do they provide? All of those things that I went through before. You know, could they tolerate pruning or not? Um, and for, for sunlight, well, how much sunlight is, lit, is lost? And that's where we, we'd like them to put shadow diagrams in. And, um, you know, people say, oh, you know, I just, just don't get the sun anymore. And they really have to prove that it's a severe loss. The views. Now, I've seen a lot of these now. Uh, and sometimes people, again, are just annoyed. They've got these, this amazing view out here but there's a hedge there and they can't quite see that little bit. And they're really annoyed about that. Uh, so we have to look holistically at, you know, the overall balance and mix. But, but sometimes, yes, it is, a, it is a severe loss. Anything else that's obstructing the light or the view, obviously other trees that are not hedges for the purpose of the act, roof lines, trees on other properties well away, awnings uh, or in because we're in the Southern Hemisphere, is it a south-facing window? Well, if it's a south-facing window in the Southern Hemisphere, you're not, you're not going to get that much sun anyway, so uh, you can forget that. And the other thing too is were the plants on the owner's, tree owner's property part of a uh, permission that was given for development that was a condition of their consent in building this house that they had to put in landscaping and that's part of, a, part of an approved plan. So that was what we considered. Now here was uh, one of the early ones we did. We always take uh, height sticks out. That's a six metre height stick. The applicants wanted it chopped to two and a half metres. Uh, in, in, in the end, nothing was ordered because it didn't meet the jurisdictional test of a severe obstruction of sunlight or view. And the, the, so the, the applicant's property was on the other side. Uh, what orders do we make? Uh, I have to say, this is from our... Kiwi cousins, they're into extreme sports and they're obviously into extreme hedge trimming. Um, they're fantastic. Uh, again, you know, dismissed. If it doesn't meet that, that test, that they are severely obstructing, end of story. But if we find that they are, uh, and all of the, we, we then consider, well, what height should it be pruned to? Generally, you know, the applicant wants it as low as possible, uh, but we will go and look at, you know, where the light or the view and so on. Uh, we would think about, and this is why you have to have horticultural uh, knowledge to think, well, what's the tolerance? How, how high can we, um, where do we cut it to? At what height should it be maintained? How often should that be done? Who should pay? And, uh, and so on. Uh, and again, access issues and the like. This was out of a judgment, uh, another one of the senior commissioners who, uh, this is a bamboo hedge, and that was the height at which that was to be maintained. So sometimes they're shown in photographs, but clearly they would have to have uh, in the written orders at what height that, that was. But it was essentially to say, well, from the area where the view is seen, uh, there they probably wanted it down at fence height, but that would be unreasonable in terms of privacy issues up here is fine because it's already partly obscured by the roof line. Uh, we can order uh, 
just a part of a hedge to be cut at a different height. Um, this isn't one of our orders, by the way. Um, I've just put that in because I really like that hedge. And um, now, just as we speak, that was New South Wales. So that's what we've done. We've got our, our trees act. Now, Queensland is in, is in the process of getting new legislation. It's based pretty much on the New South Wales experience and it will be administered by the Queensland Civil Administrative Tr Tribunal, QCAT. So it's a, a tribunal is, a, is at a, quite a slightly different level to, to a court. And uh, they deal with heaps of um, other administrative issues, you know, from tenancies to um, guardianship to, you know, disputes about all sorts of things. And at the moment it's called the Neighbourhood Dispute Resolution Bill, so it hasn't been read yet for the second time in Parliament and passed down, but they're thinking that might happen, might happen in, in August. And it will include trees and fences. And what it does, it, in, it actually goes into much more detail in, in their bill, if that's what in fact happens uh, to get passed, where it goes into the rights and responsibilities of, of people in terms of, as a tree owner, as a tree keeper, they describe it, these are your reasonable responsibilities. As, as somebody who lives next door, these are your sort of responsibilities and rights. And, and it sets down a range of ways that disputes can be resolved. And at this stage, it doesn't apply to state or council-owned land, but it does actually go, you know, full bore into um, damage, injury, sunlight, views, and also nuisance, you know, the enjoyment of the land. So we'll wait and see how that goes. They're doing it uh, slightly differently. They've got uh, ways of trying to uh, resolve it themselves, which is what we have outside of our court system, but they'll be encouraging through case management, the use of their dispute resolution centres and mediation to try and get an, a, an agreement. Uh, they will have notices for very minor overhangs where they can deal with it themselves. And then if that doesn't work, there's an application to QCAT, there's case management, a tree assessor will be appointed and there are people, arborists from all over Queensland who will be appointed to go out and go out and look at the trees and report back uh, to, the, to the tribunal. And in fact, to, they're called uh, the, a member of the tribunal who is like a commissioner, and they will hear it and determine it and they'll make the orders. And that's, that's the way they... It's, so it's, it, there are more steps involved in the Queensland system, so we'll wait and see. I think it'll be very interesting to compare the two models after some time. So what have we learned? Look, people are just people. You know, like, some of them get on, some of them don't. Uh, by and large, by the time we see them, they're not getting on. Um, that a lot of people still, even though we've got an abundance of stuff on our website, people don't read it. Uh, people have different perceptions of what is dangerous and the fear factor. They also have an expectation that they've gone to all this bother to put in an application and you come out and you, obviously you should agree with them. Uh, I gave a judgment in a case, it was only last week, read it all out. I mean, I went through everything, all the different hedges and views and things. I said, well, I can't make orders about that, can I? And it's read out then, uh, consequence of the foregoing application is dismissed. So I walked away and this woman said, what a load of crap. Anyway, I thought, oh, well, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. You know, somebody's not happy. Uh, but there is an expectation you're going to agree with them. 
Uh, and uh, seriously, how little people really know about trees. You know, it's this, again, this fear factor and I, I guess it's, you can understand that when they see in the media all these crash trees and, and so on after storms. And we, are, I th we, we do think it's working. You know, we, we are getting fewer applications and uh, hopefully uh, councils uh, are getting some benefit of it too, that that might have reduced their workload. But oh, seriously, um, you know, I am like a, a, a tree management officer there. I, I've just got a little bit more clout than they have and I really, you know, take my hat off to, to people who are dealing with uh, local residents all the time. It's, uh, they do a great job. Anyway, thank you. This concludes Judy Fake's discussion on trees, neighbors, and the law, a model for resolving disputes. If you would like to learn more about arboriculture and the law, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the book Arboriculture and the Law by Marillo and Valentine. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, you can go to the ISA website at isa-arbor.com, click on the Education and Research tab, Online Learning, and Online Quizzes. You will need a code, and that code is SA6293. Again, SA6293. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thanks for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer Every day, climb with the ISA